0: We are going to be in the book of Acts. For those of you who haven't been tracking with us, we're going through the book of Acts this year, and uh, we are in Acts chapter 12. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. So if you could, uh, if, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, you can always grab a Bible off a resource table. And uh, I also have some sermon notes over there, complete with at least three blanks that you can fill in as you go along. So again, if you're the type A blank filler outer, then that's for you. All right. Uh, feel free to grab one of those. And my daughter goes right to it. I love it. Um, But it's a pretty straightforward passage. So basically, today's passage, uh, it presents us with really important questions about life and death. Um, I don't know, in my conversations with people, uh, I don't know that it gets much more important than conversations about life and death. Um, Certainly that's been the case with talking to both Christians and non-Christians. A lot of people think about these things. And specifically today, we're going to look at why does God allow some people to live longer than other people? <clears throat> That's kind of one of the basic premises we're going to look at today is, is why? Because we find ourselves asking that question a lot. Why did God allow this person to live this long, but this person only this long? And I think that wrestling with such questions, and Stacy brought this up to me, I was kind of wrestling with what's the application of this, of this chapter? And, and she Put it differently, but basically she said, you know, this stretches and grows our faith wrestling with questions like this. And our God is big enough to to allow us to wrestle with these questions of life and death and specifically why some people live longer than others. That's going to grow our faith. It's going to stretch our faith, assuming that we take a humble hearted attitude towards God as being sovereign over life and death and being the the uh, the creator, the author and perfecter of life in Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, we don't know why God allows some people to live longer than others or why he allows some people to go on living at all. I mean, we turn on the news and go, why didn't he just take that person out? And why did that person that had such a promising ministry was doing such great work with those people over there or in that country over here or in this place over there for those needy folks? Why did they die suddenly? You know? And so we wrestle with these things. And I think it's our very human tendency... To see such things in light of our desire for immediate justice. And when I say our desire for immediate justice, we all struggle with this, right? This is all a temptation of ours, is we want to see immediate justice at least for everyone else. Okay? We want to see immediate justice for that person on the news, but when it comes to our own life and decisions, uh, we want delayed justice and, and we want God's grace, right, for ourselves. But long life seems like a fitting reward for who we deem to be the the, the seemingly righteous person. So when we see someone, we say they're a virtuous, righteous person. They deserve a long life. But then when we look at someone who seems truly wicked and evil to us, we determine sudden death is the only just and righteous thing. Um, But folks, our ways are not God's ways. And our thoughts about these things are not God's thoughts. And praise God for that. Because he is infinitely more gracious and merciful than we are. But the big idea for today is that God really does have an eternal, purposeful perspective on all things. So we can trust him with the issues of life and death, with matters of life and death. We can trust him. We don't have to figure it all out. That's what we're going to look at today. So in Acts chapter 12, we have three stories of life and death That are presented in the context of God's eternal, purposeful perspective. One of the grand themes of the book of Acts and and Scripture in general is that God is purposeful in, in everything, in every way. He is sovereign and he is purposeful and he is accomplishing his plans and purposes throughout all of human history. And, and throughout all of the history of the universe, he's accomplishing these plans. He's purposeful. He has an eternal, purposeful perspective. And we see that in the context of that, we see three life and death situations. We see the death of James, we're going to look at first. And then we see the near death experience of Peter. He does not die here, but there's a near death experience of sorts. And then thirdly, the death of Herod Agrippa. And we're going to talk about Herod Agrippa. So, first, Luke tells us about the death of James. And this was James, the brother of John. There's a couple of Jameses uh, that we see in the New Testament. We're actually going to see another one at the end of this passage. But this is James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. You remember one of the fishermen, the sons of Zebedee. And, uh, and he was one of the 12 apostles. And in fact, as far as we understand it, as far as we know it historically, he was the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred for his faith and his leadership in the church. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, now about that time, this is going back to chapter 11, about the time that the church in Antioch is raising funds to send to the church in Jerusalem. Um, About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church to do them harm, and he had James, the brother of John, executed with a sword. So we need to understand a little something about uh, Palestinian politics back in the first century there's several people that held the title Herod. All right? Herod Agrippa I, who we're talking about today, he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the guy that wanted to kill Jesus when he was born the Christ child, the king of the Jews. That was his grandpa, Herod the Great. And, uh, and now this is the grandson, Herod Agrippa I. And eventually, through all sorts of political you know, machinations, uh, Herod Agrippa I basically got a kingdom almost the size of his grandfather's kingdom, but he ultimately was given rule over Judea and Jerusalem in 41 A.D. is when uh, Emperor Claudius gave him that, that added uh, territory to his rule. So he comes in as, as the, the king over this area now in, in A.D. 41, and all of what we're talking about today happens just in the next couple years after he takes on rulership of this area in Jerusalem in particular. Uh, Agrippa basically wanted to get get in good with the religious leaders because there's so much intrigue and 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 uh, politics in Rome with the emperors and he was friends with several different emperors but Claudius finally comes in gives him this area and and he knows that you know Rome is constantly shifting so he wants to have a good solid political base where he's ruling so he wants to kind of kiss up to these religious leaders in Jerusalem. So what are the religious leaders in Jerusalem? What are they big on at this point? Persecuting the church. So what is Herod Agrippa I big on? Persecuting the church. And so basically he wants to get in good with them by persecuting Christians, and ultimately he executes one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of John. But Agrippa I doesn't stop there. Next, Luke tells us about the near-death experience of Peter, who is really chief among the apostles at this point. When Agrippa realizes the political benefits of persecuting Christian leaders in particular, he arrests Peter. And and the arrest happens during the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, which was an eight-day, basically, celebration, festival. So he arrests him during the Passover And uh, and that was right around the same time that Jesus had been arrested about a decade earlier, you know, about 33 A.D. Here we are in like the early 40s A.D. So about the same time of the year, Peter gets arrested and Luke details the arrest of Peter in verses three through five. It says when he saw that it pleased the Jews and that's either the the non-Christian Jewish people in Jerusalem or the leaders in particular or both. But when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. And then we get this little parenthetical statement. It says, now these were the days of unleavened bread. That was the seven days following the Passover meal. And it was all all referred to as the Passover, kind of clumped together. So now these were the days of unleavened bread. When he had arrested him, he put him in prison, turning him over to four squads of soldiers. That's 16 soldiers, four sets of four, to guard him, intending only after the Passover to bring him before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made to God intensely by the church. So you know, just look at the, con- the historical context of Acts. I don't know if Agrippa first, now that he's in charge of Judea and Jerusalem, somebody had told him about the miraculous escape of the apostles that gets detailed by Luke back in Acts chapter 5. Because remember, they arrested all the apostles at the temple, and then they miraculously were let loose, and they went right back to the temple teaching and preaching in Jesus' name. So I don't know if he had heard about that or what, but for whatever reason, Agrippa goes out of his way to make absolutely sure Peter stays put until he can be executed after the Passover because it's a faux pas to execute people in Jerusalem during this celebration, and he knew that. But Agrippa did not factor one thing into his calculations. He did not factor our omnipotent God. (laughs) He left God out of the equation. So look at verses 6 through 11. I'll just read through it quickly. It says on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, the eve of his crucifixion, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. They chain him to two of the soldiers and then they rotate the soldiers every three hours during the night so nobody falls asleep. And the prisoner doesn't escape. So he's bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near Peter and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, put on your belt and strap on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you. That's his outer garment. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Has anyone ever read Tale of Two Cities? All right, this is like, this is, I think, where Charles Dickens gets the escape scene. I won't give away too much because you need to read that book. But anyway, and he went out and continued to follow. And yet, and this is Peter, yet he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He just thought he was having a pleasant dream. Like, oh, I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm having this nice dream of escaping my my impending death. And then it says in verse 10, now when they had passed the first and second guard, and you need to know this, like Luke is like, is kind of leaving us on the edge of our seats as he details how this thing rolled out. Because it's like, okay, he's, he's out of the two guards he's chained to, and then he gets out of there, and he gets past the other two guards outside, and then he gets the next set of guards, and so we're like following him as he gets past all these obstacles. But it said, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate, no, dun-dun-dun, big iron gate, that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That is, we're expecting Herod to do. That is, executing him the next day. So this is the second of three miraculous jailbreaks. Uh, in the book of Acts. And then there's also, you know, Paul's uh, being brought to Rome. But, but actual jailbreaks, there's three that are included in the book of Acts by the inspired author Luke. And this is the middle of those three. And the earlier one that I referenced a second ago is back in Acts chapter 5. And it was very similar to this, but here we get a lot more details about how this all fell out, how this all happened. And all of the details are meant to lead us to the same exact conclusion that Peter comes to in verse 11. The Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In other words, the Lord was still using Peter to accomplish his purposes, and he wasn't going to let Herod Agrippa I or anyone else, the whole Roman Empire for that matter, get in the way of what he was doing in and through Peter the Apostle. Okay, So against all odds, at least from a human perspective, The prayers of the church for Peter were answered in a very direct way with a miraculous escape. And then Peter heads to one of the locations where the church is praying to the house of Mary and uh, to go tell his friends the good news. And this is where it gets kind of fun and comical. So I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. And this is actually supposed to be funny. So just track with me. It said, and when he, that is Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. Mark, probably the author of the Gospel of Mark, also called John Mark. He shows up a bunch in Acts, but this is where we're introduced to Mark. So his mom, Mary, has a nice big house, probably a widow, probably has some means. And it says, Where many were gathered together and were praying. What were they praying for? They were praying for Peter, right? We learned that earlier. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a slave woman named Rhoda. So this is like a female servant that would have been in charge of kind of opening the gate for people. Uh, Her name's Rhoda. It means Rose or Rosebud. Rose. This is Rose. She comes to the door. Okay. And uh, and it says she came to answer when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy. She did not open the gate. But she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in, the front, in front of the gate, right? So she just, like, gets all excited and takes off and doesn't even unlatch the gate for him. And he's out there, you know, looking behind his back going, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? And so they said to her, you're out of your mind. And very similar to what they said to the female disciples that witnessed the resurrection when they came back to tell the the. the Kind of the a little slow on the uptake men, male disciples. They're like, you guys are out of your mind. No, surely that didn't happen. Even though Jesus said over and over and over again, I'm going to resurrect from the dead. Like, no, you guys are out of your mind. Same thing here. We're praying for the miraculous escape of Peter. Hey, Peter's at the front door. You're out of your mind. What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> but it says, um, oh, this is interesting. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they said, it is his angel. I have no idea what that means. I'm just going to be honest. We're going to move on. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Over and over again in Acts, you see this amazement at at what God does in different circumstances. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, like, come on, guys, simmer down. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brothers. Then he left and went to another place. Where he went, I have no idea. There's like five good options, okay? Okay. That's unimportant, though. So this is really a comical scene where where Rose, you know, the the servant girl, leaves Peter outside while she runs in to tell everybody the good news. And even though they've been fervently and, you know, excitedly, enthusiastically, expectantly praying for Peter, nobody can believe that he's actually miraculously escaped in the in the middle of the night from prison. And when they finally see him, they're amazed at what God has accomplished and again, I have no idea what that angel references to. But before Peter heads out of town to escape the wrath of Agrippa, and by the way, this happens. When people are threatened, just like when Saul was threatened in Damascus and later on in, in uh, Jerusalem, we do see church leaders actually fleeing from their persecutors. Sometimes we see people staying and, and being persecuted, sometimes martyred for their faith. But here we see Peter basically leaving word for the other James, who was the eldest brother of Jesus, so Jesus had brothers and sisters, his eldest brother James, who authored the book of James in the New Testament, eventually he becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. Once the the apostles kind of step off the scene, then James and the elders really become the leadership there. He becomes a pillar, we, we learn later on in Acts 15. So this is a different James, and he wants to get the word to him, and then he kind of vacates the premises, okay? So finally, let's get to the third story here. Luke tells us about the death of Herod Agrippa. And this is ironic. So Herod Agrippa thinks he's a big bad man, and he's going to, you know, scare everybody, persecute, execute everybody. And how does the story end? He dies. Okay, so let's look at that. And this account, by the way, I love these little things. So Luke is an incredible historian. He just is. He's a great, he's very methodical in his histories, his accounts. Um, But we also see historical evidence outside of biblical uh, texts that support exactly what he's saying. And so Josephus, who was a contemporary of Luke's, who was a Jewish uh, historian for the Romans, uh, Josephus actually writes about the same account of the death of Herod Agrippa I, and he provides some additional details, but they can be easily um, overlapped. Right? They're not contradictory. So we see this extra biblical evidence that what Luke is telling us, that's very nuanced and specific, is actual historical fact. So let's look at Luke's inspired account in verses 18 to 23. I'm going to read it. It says, Now when day came, so this is the the morning, the sun, the roosters crowing after the miraculous escape. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. They are guffawed, if that's the appropriate use of that archaic term. But when Herod finds out, when the, I mean, the soldier's like, what in the world happened? Like, there's empty chains and shackles. There's a gate that somehow is opened, whatever. Uh, They're trying to figure out and it says when Herod had searched for him and had not found him He examined the guards and ordered that they be led away That is led away to execution in roman times if the guard let the prisoner escape the guard got the same Punishment the prisoner would have gotten so they get put to the edge of the sword, okay Now he was very uh, i'm sorry. Then he went down from judea You always go down from jerusalem because it's real high up in the mountains Uh, But he goes down to a coastal town called Caesarea, uh, or Caesarea. And so he goes to Caesarea, and he was spending time there. And that was kind of the Roman seat uh, of government and military rule, was Caesarea. And uh, it says, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And these are coastal places north of of Palestine. And with one mind, they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain. That's like his chief of staff, kind of. They so they won over his chief of staff, his personal assistant. Having won him over, they were asking Herod for peace because their country was supported with grain from the king's country. And on an appointed day, so they're here, they're here to like strike a political bargain with Herod Agrippa the First. Right? He's kind of got them in a, a vulnerable position, okay? So on an appointed day, they get this all figured out, after putting on his royal apparel, Herod took his seat on the rostrum. That's like the um, it's like a, basically a flat surface that's raised where they would do like political proclamations and speeches and judgments and things like this. And so on a pointed day, he took his seat on the rostrum and he began delivering an address to them. So now he's got all the politics figured out and he's going to address the people, what they've figured out. And the people repeatedly cried out, the voice of a God and not of a man. They're referring to Herod here. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him Because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. And I don't know in what order that happened or how that all worked out, but uh, that's kind of the gruesome details. So Agrippa I, who's kind of a nasty guy, he gets his just desserts in the end, and it ain't pretty, right? Uh, In his arrogance, and we get more details on this from Josephus about him being called a god by these people that are trying to kind of kiss up to him, you know, for political favors, And he he allows them to say, oh, he's like a god, not a man. He is a god, you know. And so because of his arrogance, he receives this worship as a god. But God humbles him to the point of being eaten by worms. Again, whatever that means. But it's it's meant to convey the humiliation, right? He exalts himself. God humiliates him in death, okay? So in all of these instances of death and deliverance from near-death experiences, the task of the church is what? James dies, Peter almost dies but lives, Herod Agrippa dies. What's the task of the church in Jerusalem and beyond in all of this? It's to trust in the eternal purposeful perspective of the Lord, believing that God was active in accomplishing his plans and purposes in the midst of all these various circumstances. And uh, I mean, just Right before his own arrest, I mentioned Jesus was arrested right before the Passover, ten years earlier. Right before his own arrest, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Y'all remember this scene where he goes a stone's throw from the disciples, they fall asleep. What's he praying? He's talking about a cup of suffering that he's going to have to drink. And he says in Luke's version, which the same author here, uh, these are the words that Luke writes for Jesus' prayer, Father. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's this cup of suffering and death that he's about to have to drink, metaphorically speaking. But he says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Famous prayer of Jesus, right? And and what happens in the next two verses? Y'all remember this? After he prays that? In Luke's account, in Luke 22, 43 and 44, this is what he says. Now... An angel from heaven appeared to him. What what about Luke's sequel, the Gospel of Acts? What do we expect to happen when you're facing arrest and execution and you pray and an angel shows up? Right, a miraculous escape, right? Maybe you could call down 12 legions of angels to to come protect him and save him from what he's going to go through. No, it says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, related to the exact same word as how the church was praying when Peter got arrested, was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So folks, in other words, the father sends an angel to strengthen Jesus for his suffering and death, not to save him from suffering and death. But Jesus understood His father's plans he understood the will of the father and he knew that he alone had to come as the lamb of god who would take away the sins of the world through his sacrificial atoning death on the cross he knew that and and peter even preaches this in his first sermon in the book of acts in acts chapter 2 after pentecost what's the very first thing peter's preaching on it's this Peter says, and I love this passage because if you're ever wondering about how God's sovereignty and human culpability or responsibility or whatever you want to call it, how that all works together, we see these glimpses and it doesn't, it doesn't solve that for us. It just presents that for us, that God is sovereign and yet people make decisions and they're culpable for those decisions. And this is what Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. He's talking about Jesus and he says, This man, Jesus delivered over, that is delivered over to you in his arrest and, and suffering and death, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So, did Peter understand that life and death were in the Lord's hands? You better believe it. Sometimes he grants a longer life to some. But all will eventually face physical death in this life. I won't get into what you, know, what you believe about rapture or the return of Christ right now. But for the sake of, of, this, of this point... All of us are going to face physical death. Every human who's ever existed outside of a handful, like Enoch and Elijah, have faced physical death. Okay, That's just a result of living in this fallen world and the effects of sin. All right, But some people will be granted a longer life than others. But that physical death that we all face, folks, it's going to be swallowed up in resurrection life for those of us who have trusted in the risen Christ like Peter had. That physical death in light of eternity and resurrection and glory will be absolutely inconsequential, infinitesimally inconsequential compared to eternity of glory. And Peter knew that. And perhaps that's why Peter's able to sleep so soundly on the eve of his crucifixion chained to two Roman guards. He trusted God's eternal, purposeful perspective on life and death. And I think our application of this passage is, is right there in verse 5. That's where it says So, Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made to God intensely by the church. So, folks, what should we do when faced with issues of life and death? Well, we should do what they did. We, we should pray fervently, just as Jesus did on the eve of his own arrest. Well, the night of his own arrest, the eve of his own execution. We should pray fervently just as the church did on the eve of Peter's execution. And I I guarantee you they were praying those same prayers for James when James was arrested and eventually executed. So what do we as the church do when faced with issues of life and death? Folks, we get on our face, we get on our hands and knees, and we cry out to God. And just like Jesus, we, we must trust God. By ending each prayer with the simple acknowledgment of our faith in God's eternal, purposeful perspective. With the simple words, yet not my will, but thy will be done. We pray fervently, but we end it. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. Death might come sooner, as it did with Jesus and James. Uh, death might be delayed for decades, as it was with Peter. Peter didn't die for another 20 years before he was, at least by tradition, crucified upside down under Nero. Uh, or James's brother John, the other son of Zebedee. He might have been the only apostle that didn't get martyred, right? And he went on to live a much longer life. So it might come sooner, it might be delayed for decades, but we can always trust that God will ultimately accomplish two things. And guys, these are at the root of our Christian faith. These are at the root of biblical teaching. I just want to recap them very simply. There's two things that will ultimately be accomplished by God. Those who bear the guilt of their sin, who are separated from God because of sin, will be condemned and will be cut off from the life-giving presence of our Holy Creator for the rest of eternity. I don't want to mince words there. I don't want to make this confusing. I want to be very clear on what the Bible teaches that if you bear the guilt of your own sin, then you will be separated from our holy God for all eternity. However, we can trust that those who have been forgiven by the blood of Christ and wrapped in His righteousness will, will not only be saved from judgment on that day, but will be resurrected and glorified with God in His eternal kingdom with Christ and His people. And I, just, I want to close with just two our last two verses of the chapter. Uh, in chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, it says, after all that, all those stories we just looked at, this is how Luke wraps this up. He says, but, that's a great word in Scripture, but, so Herod goes to his death, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ continued to to go out amongst the nations, continue to spread out and people believed. And then they shared their faith with others who believed and it kept spreading outward. So as Herod goes to his demise, the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And then it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned when they had fulfilled their mission to Jerusalem, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And that's going to set us up well for, for next week. But here, Luke, at the very end of chapter 12, gives us a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes. While James is being unjustly arrested and persecuted and ultimately executed, while Peter is being miraculously delivered from death and execution, while Herod Agrippa is facing divine judgment, the Lord is still accomplishing his plans and purposes in the midst of all these circumstances. And his purpose in this, what we see in the book of Acts, is to... Continue bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose again, that we can have forgiveness and eternal life in him, to get that to more and more people, and then on and on to more and more people through them, and on and on throughout the centuries, even to today and us sitting in this room today. And that's what he was doing, and that's what he did in the midst of everything we talked about today. So next week, I, I said it set us up well, we're going we're gonna to follow Mark and Saul and Barnabas back to Antioch. And guys, this is a huge transition in the book of Acts. We're going to move from Jerusalem and Peter spotlighted to really Antioch becoming this missional hub for missional endeavors to the ends of the earth, to all these nations and Gentile populations and cities. And that's really going to set us up for the rest of the book of Acts. We're going to look at that next week. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to take communion, okay?